Good morning. Turn with me, please, to the gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 1. Mark is an interesting gospel account of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have four gospel accounts. We have one by Matthew, one by Mark, one by Luke, and one by John. And if you read much in those gospels, you'll find Jesus portrayed from a different point of view, let's say, just like a diamond as you look at a diamond from a different view, the facets hit you in a different way. You see Matthew presenting the Lord Jesus Christ as what? King. As king. And Luke presents the Lord Jesus Christ as man or human, fully man. And John, my favorite, presents the Lord Jesus Christ as none other than God himself. And we go to Mark, and Mark's unusual because it portrays the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect servant the perfect servant. It's interesting because it fits with the flow of the book. I like Mark because it's a fast-paced, action-packed book. Um, The descriptions are scant, and you can find fuller details of those uh, encounters that Jesus has in in one one, one or the other Gospels, but Mark keeps it short and concise. He's moving along at a fast pace. And I sort of like that appeals to me, but I still have to go to some of the other passages to read all the in-between parts of what's really happening when he, the Lord Jesus, his infinite wisdom gives us a snapshot. Well, what's in the snapshot that I don't see at face value? I have to look deeper. If you were to pick a key word in the book of Mark, what would you pick? What would you pick? And you can answer that question. What would you pick? A key word in the book of Mark. If you remember a key word from reading or studying in the, in the book of Mark. Anybody remember a word? Immediately. Immediately. That's exactly the one I would pick. Very good. Very good. It's mentioned 39 times through the book, 10 times in chapter 1 alone. So we want to think about that word immediately and the pace of the narrative. When, when you think of the word immediately, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? Action? Speak up. I can't hear. I mean, I want to throw this out there. Right now. Right now. Immediately means right now. It sort of reminds me of obedience means now. My boss calls me up. He says, what are you, what are you doing tomorrow? And he's talking about at work. And I say, anything you want me to do. <laughs> and he says, oh, good, because <laughs> he has something for me to do. And I'll drop everything to do what he wants me to do. And he likes that. And that pleases the Lord when uh, he wants us to do something and we do it immediately. What else does the word immediately bring to mind? Would you consider it maybe cast out the whole idea of being slothful? Oh, when I get around to it. That's not being immediate. Being immediate, doing something immediately doesn't really describe a procrastinator, does it? So there's a lot in that word. What else can we see? Quick acting? Immediately. Man, that person is quick acting. Say the word, and he's off, or she's off. Immediately. Think of people in the scripture that are testimonies to obedience 
immediately. Philip, when the Spirit took him before that Ethiopian eunuch, he jumped into action, didn't he? There's something special there. It speaks of urgency too, doesn't it? Immediately, there's an urgency there. And we see um, the Lord on an urgent mission throughout the book of Mark. Fast pace. It also means, I, I think it has a, a connotation of connection. You know, and we're going to see it in the passage. If I clap my hand as somebody falls to the ground, there's an association or connection between something that happens immediately. Right? And we'll see if we can see that in the text. A connection because of the word, the placement of the word immediately. So we're going to start in verse 9, and hopefully we'll make it all the way to verse 20. Verse 9, And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So do you find that unusual, that Jesus was baptized by John? What was the baptism of John? Baptism of repentance for sinners, right? And we all know that that uh, really describes a small select group on the face of the earth, right? Sinners? It says in Scripture, we're all sinners. And we all need to repent of our sins. It's amazing that God gives us a chance to repent, to change our mind and turn to Him for His solution. We want a closer account of John's baptism and why it was unusual even to John. We can go to Matthew chapter 3. We read in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and we'll skip a couple passages. Um, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 3, Matthew 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 5, then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So John had them confess their sins. And sometimes when you're talking about somebody about repenting or about being a sinner in need of a Savior, it's not a bad question to ask. What makes you think you're so bad? What great sins do you have? And just listen what they say. John had them confess their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth forth fruit in keeping with repentance. So there were people jumping on the bandwagon, getting baptized or coming out to be baptized, claiming to have repented. It doesn't say they named their sins or they confessed. And John was very wise when he wanted to see fruit meet with repentance. In other words, if a person's truly repentant, there should be a change in their life, a change in their action. The kind of repentance that doesn't demonstrate itself in change is just lip service. It's just words. And and it could be sincere and it might not be sincere. I think John thought it wasn't sincere in this case. But people need to know that the kind of repentance that the Lord looks for is a repentance that brings a change of action. Verse 13, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do do you come to me? 
See, it was a baptism for those sinners to come demonstrate that they repent, confess their sins, and publicly show that by baptism in water, baptism of repentance. The Lord Jesus Christ needed not to be uh, baptized a baptism of repentance because he had sin. He had no sin. He was perfect. And John recognized that, and he didn't want to do it. But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And I think we could probably even add immediately, because that's how John was. So the Lord was baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness. Have you ever wondered how that fulfills righteousness? How does it? How does it? Well, we know that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, took our sins in his body on the cross that he might bring us to God. He took the sinner's place. Well, I'm a sinner. In my place, if John the Baptist was here to, were here today, it would be to repent and go get baptized by John the Baptist because I need to admit that I need a Savior. I need to admit that my sins are disagreeable to God. They're, they're hideous, hideous, hideous abomination to God, and I need to be punished for those sins if I don't have a Savior. So the Lord Jesus Christ, in his association with that repentance, was really associating it for us, wasn't he? He was standing in our place there. But there's more to it than that. And let's read on to find out how it fulfilled all righteousness. It says, And immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now, why is that happening? Why do we have the Spirit descending on the Lord Jesus Christ as a dove? And we go to John chapter 1 to find out. John chapter 1, verse 31 through 37. This is what John said. And I did not recognize him, but in order that, I might be, that he might be manifest to Israel... I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and remained on him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God, and again... The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed him. In the last part of the message, we want to talk about following Jesus. But we see that God, who sent John the Baptist, sent him to baptize that the coming of the Messiah might be manifest or made known. And John wasn't sure who that would be, and so God gave him an indicator. The one whom you see, the Spirit descending and abiding on him, descending as a dove, this is the one. So at that point, John knew. So how important was it that the, the word immediately was in there? And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open up in the Spirit, like a dove descending upon him. There was an association there. That's your cue, John. That's how you'll know. That's how you'll recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think it's really encouraging that the Lord made it so there could be no mistake. This is the one. And John didn't miss it. He saw it. 
and a voice came out of heaven. And here's a commentary on the Lord Jesus Christ from Almighty God, from God the Father. A voice came out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved Son, in Thee I am well pleased. Thou art my beloved Son, in Thee I am well pleased. Think of who's saying that. God being well pleased. It reminds me when he made creation, he said, this is very good. But he calls Jesus my beloved son. There's a love connection there. Everything that the Lord Jesus Christ did, everything he said, every attitude that he displayed, pleased the Father thoroughly, without reservation. That's a personal relationship within the Godhead. It's amazing. It's amazing. God being well pleased. I can remember another time it speaks of the Father's appraisal of the Son. In Matthew 12, 18, quoting Isaiah, Matthew says, Behold, my servant. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Beloved son, servant, behold him. And I think that's what God wants us to do. Behold him. Look upon him. Read about him. See what I see in him. Worship him. It says, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Reading from Luke 22. They were arguing about which one would be greater. So he he teaches them this lesson. But not so with you, but let him who is greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. One who serves. The servant says in the scriptures, the servant is the greatest. And here we have the perfect servant. No one greater. No one greater. And at verse 12 in uh, Mark 1, and immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. That word impelled was a little bit confusing to me. So that I had to cross reference with the other gospels where it said that he was led into the wilderness or he was led about by the spirit in the wilderness. God wanted him to go out there. So he went. Guided by the Spirit of God. Obedient, as an obedient servant. Why did he go out there? It was a purpose. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He went out to be tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast and the angels were ministering to him. That's a pretty abbreviated um, passage about the account that happened out in the wilderness, isn't it? Would you like to look into the details? We find them in Matthew. We also find them in Luke Four, let's read about him. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. This was constant temptation. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterwards, when they had ended, he was hungry. I think I would have been hungry long before the, after 40 days. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Think of that. 
we're going to read these temptations. Of course, they cover three different categories. But I don't believe there's a man on the face of the earth that ever lived that could have resisted these temptations under those circumstances but the Lord Jesus Christ and only him. We read about them as if they're nothing but 40 days in the wilderness with wild beasts eating nothing. Yeah, we probably wouldn't be alive. But Jesus answered saying, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. There's something more important to him than physical life. More important to him than eating. More important than surviving. It was pleasing the Father. Then the devil taking him up on a high mountain. Okay, maybe that doesn't appeal to him. Maybe something else will. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said, all this authority I will give to you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me. And I will give it to whom, whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. So the food, he couldn't trip the Lord up on the food. Now he's trying the glory. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Here we have the beloved son, God's servant, pleasing God by resisting temptation. He's using the word of God to it, too, to resist. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you, you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. So those are the three temptations listed of which Jesus had resisted. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. It says in Matthew 4.11, then angels came and ministered to him. Imagine he was pretty exhausted at the end of that, resisting all temptation. People argue about whether it was a legitimate temptation. I don't have a problem with it being a legitimate temptation which tells me it's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to go along with the suggestion of temptation is what it is, but the Lord didn't. Do I believe he could have? No, because he's the very person of God. Sin is the antithesis of who he is, his character. But that doesn't make it any less of a real temptation because we have to remember he was 100% man and 100% God. And I don't believe he used the God that he is and the strength that God has to resist these temptations. He resisted them in his humanity. Otherwise, we would somehow attribute some superhuman strength to him that we don't have. So he resisted the temptation in his humanity, relying on God for strength. And God gave him the same strength he would give us so then why was he tempted? Why was he tempted? I happen to believe that he was tempted to demonstrate how worthy, how acceptable his qualifications to be our Savior are. Because to save a sinner 
from hell would require a sacrifice that was without sin. Because everyone that has sins must pay the debt of their sins. So if anyone else has sins, they have a debt. You can only pay one debt. He had to be sinless. And this is the demonstration that he was sinless. In another place in Scripture, it says in John 14, 29, when he was telling his disciples that he is soon to die, he said, and, and then, of course, he would be raised from the dead, and now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you may believe. In other words, I told you beforehand. I, t- I tell you beforehand. So when it happens, don't be, don't be all afraid because I also said I'm going to raise from the dead. So, and I'm telling you that ahead of time. And remember when it says it, um, he, that Satan departed until an opportune time? Here's the opportune time. Jesus said, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. So it's saying that Satan's going to come, come again for another session of temptations. But Jesus is declaring he's got nothing to appeal to in this heart of mine. Nothing. Because he didn't count his life dear to himself. His greatest demonstration of love is his desire to please the Father and not sin. He couldn't sin. So Satan didn't have anything to tempt him with in the sense that could get him to fall because he had nothing in him, the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it demonstrated through this passage and passages that are more fully explained um, elsewhere about these passages. And the angels were ministering to him. Verse 14, Mark 1. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. So John, John was arrested. Wrongly so, but he was arrested. And the Lord preached the same message. The gospel of God. Good news. Saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel that Jesus, being God would take our sins on himself, go to the cross and be punished in our place so that he can offer salvation, eternal life as a free gift on the basis of righteousness, debt paid, God satisfied, God's justice satisfied. That was good news to sinners. And he, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So the rest of the message I'd like to talk about following the Lord Jesus Christ, following Jesus. Because it's his desire that we follow him. He calls us to be followers of himself. He sees Simon and Andrew casting a net by the sea. They were fishermen. And we can learn a thing about, or two about the Lord Jesus Christ fishing for men, because he uses this amazing transition. Fishermen, fishers of men. Easy transition, isn't it? Follow me, fishermen, and I will make you fishers of men. That, to me, is a a sterling example of the perfect transition. Why did he go after these two individuals? Because Jesus is interested in souls. He's interested 
in the salvation of souls. He's interested in you. He's interested in me. He's interested in all the lost out there. And he wants to bring them into his kingdom, safe and sound, protected against the wrath of God. He says, follow me. Follow me. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. I'd like to zero in this, the me part of this. Follow me. Jesus calls us to follow him. He doesn't call us to follow Paul. He doesn't call us to follow Apollos or Cephas. Follow him. We live in a day and age, as I'm sure centuries past it was true, we have a tendency to become followers of men, of one man or another man, one woman or another woman, especially if they love the Lord. God doesn't call us to be followers of men. God calls us to be followers of himself. The Lord Jesus Christ said, follow me, follow me, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. I will make your life fruitful. I will give you the value or values that I have. People are more important than things. People are more important than experiences. Because why? Because they're important to God. They're important to Jesus. You know, the lost are all everywhere. And our world is very small when you think about it. How big is your world? I think of when I hear stories of in Austria, the, the workers there, they're going to countries I haven't even heard of, some of them. How far do we go with the gospel? Just our neighborhood? Maybe not even that far. Our friends? Maybe not even that far. Our family? Maybe we hesitate there. Souls are all over the world. And the Lord's vision is the world. He says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. They immediately left the nets and followed him. It's going to cost something. Those nets were their livelihood. That was their business. And what did they do? They just walked away. They walked away. If the Lord called you to walk away from your job, from your business, from your family, would you do it? Would you turn your back and just walk away? That's what these two did. What does this say about the Lord Jesus Christ? You know what it says? It says, He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy for you to walk away from everything and anything to follow him. And I remember that thought when I first got saved. I'm going to heaven. Nothing else matters. I was ready to walk away from everything and anything. Not that I had a lot to walk away from, you know. So I'm not claiming anything big there. But I remember the, the heartfelt feeling response to his salvation. And I want that back. I want that back. Follow me. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Obedience means now. He had great plans for them. And we could see later on that though you deny the Lord, though you fail, he still has plans to use you. As he did Peter. So following Jesus may mean leaving several things. Job, maybe a career, 
Maybe you've set your heart and worked toward this career most of your life at your young age. Maybe you leave your home, your hometown, maybe even your culture. Maybe you don't know what it's like to live in another culture. I didn't before I went to Brazil. Leave your place of comfort, your comfort zone. Leave relationships, hopes, and dreams. Perhaps you've had dreams. You've nurtured those dreams through the years. And though you'd be discouraged at the idea that those dreams might not manifest themselves, if you offer up that to the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll give you something better. He'll give you something better. Following Jesus means a one-on-one personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ where you're going where he tells you to go. And our tendency is to look at everybody else. Yeah, but what about, where are they going? Is anybody going with me? What about them? What about them? Following Jesus has nothing to do with looking at somebody else. We see that in Scripture. Two people come to mind. Peter, when he was restored. Let's read it. It'll be better if we read it. Because I want to get the details. John 21, 18 through 22. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. So that describes your youth, right? Just get to do whatever you want, you know. Go wherever you want. Life's full of excitement. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now he said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So basically he laid it out beforehand. You know, when you were young, you used to go all these places. Wherever you wanted to go, you went. But when you get old, you're going to be restrained. When you get old, you're going to be taken where you don't want to go. And he's telling them basically he's going to be a martyr. He's going to die for the cause of Christ. And then he said, follow me. So he lets him know the price right off the bat. He found out what the bitterness of denying Christ was all about. That experience was very bitter for him. He walked out in tears. But after being restored, he's given another chance. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, which was John. The one who also had leaned back on his breast at supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. See, don't get your eyes on anyone else. You follow me. If you're following me, you don't have to worry about everybody else. Leave that with me. That'll be my concern. And you remember Martha, she was distracted with all her serving. And she said, Lord, don't you care? Tell Mary to help me. Got her eyes on someone else. They're not working. She's not working. I am. Well, if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ and you're doing your service to please him, we have that at my work. There's a couple of instructors that are so bothered that other instructors have more free time than they do. And they think the other's instructors should help them. And they don't say that to me because I have so much work to do myself. And I don't, I don't really care what the other instructors are doing because to me that's job security. The more I have to do, 
the more they need me. So I try to tell them, don't get your eyes on someone else. Just do your work. You'll always be needed. And that's like the Lord Jesus Christ. Just do your work. I'll give you plenty to do. Don't worry about anybody else. We have this preconceived idea that what God wants me to do, he wants everybody else to do too. Well, in general principles, yeah, he wants us all to be concerned about the lost, but how we do that's not always the same. And oftentimes, we have this idea that person has to be like this. Christian has to have all his doctrine together. He's got to have his life together. He's got to be disciplined. He's got to be in, see fruit. He's got all these things before he can serve the Lord as a missionary, let's say. I've heard criticisms of missionaries, problems they have. And, and I've really grown in my um, appraisal of the whole thing because the Lord's worked on my heart. I went to listen to uh, Fred Colvin uh, teach at Fairhaven. Samuel, you were there. Book of Judges. You know, and, and then I went and stayed with Fred. So I got to see him, see how he lives, see how he responds, see how he's at. And I will tell you, Fred is not a perfect person. Now, that won't surprise you, but there's, you can see there's things behind what I'm saying, just like I'm not. My wife sees things about me that you, you don't see. So she's probably the greatest one to say I'm not perfect than anybody, and I don't claim to be. But this is what I'll say about Fred. He is true to his teaching. He's true to his teaching, because I've heard him criticized, because he's, his view or this or that or something he did, you know? To me, that's the biggest crime, because he's true to his teaching, and I didn't know that until I heard the teaching. He talked about Gideon and Jephthah and their lives. You all know, and, and, and uh, not, uh, Samson. Samson's in the hallmark of faith in Hebrews. You remember Samson? You remember some of the mistakes he made? <laughs> Cost him his life? And yet God puts him in the honor roll of faith. And this is what Fred knows. God uses imperfect people. We make mistakes. We make blunders. We fall into sin. But those are the exact people God uses. God went down and grabbed some fishermen. Fishermen generally aren't the most clean-spoken people. <laughs> They're average people, just like you and I. He didn't go to the synagogue to say, you follow me. You're polished. Your theology's good. Your practice is a little got to work on, but no. No, he went to the fishermen. But I've seen and I've heard from people in Austria, since Fred's been there, they've seen 40 churches planted in Austria and another 25 in other countries. Not always directly, but as a consequence of his work. Others going on for the Lord. Wow, I'd like to be him when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ. <laughs> and if the teaching is that you can have flaws, you cannot be perfect, and you're even a better candidate for the Lord than if you were. And I see sometimes our appraisals and criticisms, I, and I think I'm, I've been wrong. You don't have to be perfect. And I'm encouraged by it because I certainly am not. When the Lord says, follow me, he's glorified when he takes someone with our faults and failures and use us to glorify himself. He gets the glory. We don't. You know, we can't say, yeah, I went to seminary, I got this polished presentation, and, you know, you can't find any fault with it. He can't use somebody like that because they're grabbing all the glory. 
It's got to use someone like us. We make mistakes. We're not perfect in what we say. And somehow he can do it. It's amazing. So I want to remember that. Follow me, he says. Don't look at everybody else. They can make their own mistakes. Don't criticize them. If you don't look at them, you won't criticize them, right? You follow me. Follow me. John, his brother, let's see, I'm missing part of our chair. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending nets. And, he, he, and immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servant, and they went away to follow him. So here's two brothers. Now, they got a, they got a family business here. You got servants involved, father, he's probably the boss, and they're involved in this fishing company. And he calls them. So here's an example. What did they leave? They left their father. They left the family business. But I, I think it's unusual that it says what they were doing. You know, They're fishermen, right? But they, they were done fishing for the day. And what were they doing? They're mending nets. So they're hard workers. They're hard workers. And they're getting prepared for the next day. So they mend their nets, hang them up. Next day they can take their nets ready to go. But it speaks to me spiritually, too, because when we talked about the first two were fishermen, these two were mending their nets, it talks about the heart of God. He wants to save souls, and he wants to mend broken hearts. He's a mender, and he wants us to be involved with those two things, seeking the lost, mending the broken. And that's all, of course, him through us. He says, follow me. That, that would be a life. At the end, we could say that was a fulfilling life. The service for the Lord, serving others. Because everything else is going to burn. Everything else is going to burn. Other people he called to follow him. One was a notorious tax collector named Levi. What did he do? He got up from that tax collecting table and walked away. Called all his friends and had a party. And Jesus went to the party. Why? Because there were sinners there. People criticized him for going. If you're going to a place where there are sinners, which I don't know how you can go where they're not sinners, but notorious sinners, to share Christ, who cares who criticizes you? Because you're following the Lord Jesus Christ and his example. <clears throat> following the Lord Jesus Christ has never been said to be easy in the scriptures. Never. Let's read about how hard it can be. Matthew chapter 8. certain scribe came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And you want to follow me? That's what he's, to me, I read between the lines. And another disciple said to him, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But he said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Behold, there was a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. 
So following the Lord Jesus Christ might mean not sleeping in a bed. I can remember sleeping on a fish box one night when I was in the Amazon. <laughs> Thought of this verse. The Lord doesn't promise us physical comfort, a nice soft bed. He slept out in the field oftentimes. He doesn't permit us to have things in our life that we think are more important. Let the bed, dead bury the dead. How involved does he want us to be in the things that the unsaved can do? There are things that you can do if you know him and you know the gospel that they can never do. And that's share the gospel. Be involved in the work of God. And here God led them into a storm. What were they thinking at that point? Well, I, he said, follow me, and I did, and he takes me into a storm. Now I'm going to die. Reminds me of Glum. When I used to walk, watch cartoons when I was little. There's one guy that always says, it'll never work. We're doomed. No matter what. <laughs> so circumstances could seem a little difficult. But if the Lord's in the boat, you're safe, right? We shouldn't be daunted at the difficulties. But he never says it's going to be easy. From that time on, it says, Matthew 16, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, he was following the directions of his father. And I think if God gave us those orders to die and be raised up on the third day, I don't think our eyes would be on the raised up on the third day part. It would be on the dying part. We might cringe, but the Lord didn't recoil at the thought. Peter took him aside and said, and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. It was just so foreign to his thinking. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You don't understand, Peter. When God gives directions, they're to be immediately obeyed because they are the best. You don't know what you're saying. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Real life is following the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though we die to do it, that's true life, and he will raise us up. Pursuing the things that we enjoy, contrary to what God wants us to do, we won't, be, we won't find satisfaction in those things. And they'll turn around and mock us the day we meet the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, follow me. Follow me. So the big question today is, what will you resolve to do? What will I resolve to do? And just what does it mean to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? not going to mean the same thing for each and every one of us. He's going to call us to do different things, perhaps. There might be some things in common. The question is, will you ask him? Will you pray, Lord, I want to follow you. I haven't been faithful in the past. What would you have me to do? And keep praying that until he shows you. He'll show you. He will. Follow. Follow. He followed the Father's will, and it brought us salvation. Shouldn't we follow him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the reminder from your word how important it is to follow you. 
You think of what's on your heart, the souls of the lost. Lord, and that's never left your heart. We think of how it's your desire to use us to reach the lost. Maybe here in this neighborhood, maybe in another city, maybe in another country, Lord. But we know for that to happen, we need to follow you. And so we pray that you'd ask us, or that we ask that you'd help us to ask the question, Lord, what is there in my life that keeps me from following you? Lord, and and that we would realize that no matter what it is, giving up it would be the soundest and the sanest thing to do, Lord. So we just commit ourselves to you and just pray. I pray for everyone here that we might have this heart attitude to follow you. Pray it in Jesus' name.